9. Heirs do not hesitate, when using for the face of a wall bricks of a quality superior to those used for the interior, to use, snapped headers, that is cutting the heading bricks in halves, one brick thus serving the purposes of two as regards outward appearance, this is a most pernicious practice, and worthy of adoption by any craftsman of repute, for a skin of brickwork 41 2 inches thick is thus carried up with a straight mortar joint behind it, the proper bonding with the back of the wall by means of headers being destroyed, American building acts describe the kind of bond to be used for ordinary walls, and the kind for faced walls. Tie courses also require an extra thickness where walls are perforated with over 30 of flues. The importance for sanitary and other reasons of keeping walls dry is admitted by all who had observed the deleterious action of damp upon a building. Walls are liable to become damp, one by wet rising up the wall from the earth, two by water soaking down from the top of the wall. 3 by rain being driven onto the face by wind. Dampness from the first cause may be prevented by the introduction of damp-proof courses or the construction of dry areas, from the second by means of a coping of stone, cement or other non-porous material, and from the third by covering the exterior with impervious materials or by the adoption of hollow walls. After the footings have been laid and the wall has been brought up to not less than 6 inches above the finished surface of the ground, and previous to fixing the plate carrying the ground floor, there should always be introduced a course of some damp-proof material to prevent the rise of moisture from the soil. There are several forms of damp-proof course. A very usual one is a double layer of roofing slates laid in neat Portland cement figure 8, the joints being well lapped. A course or two of Staffordshire blue bricks in cement is excellent where heavy weights have to be considered. Glazed stoneware perforated slabs about 2 inches thick are specially made for use as damp-proof courses. Asphalt figure 9 recently has come into great favor with architects. A layer 1 2 or 3 4 inches thick is a good protection against damp, and not likely to crack should a settlement occur. But in hot weather it is liable to squeeze out at the joints under heavy weights. Felt covered with bitumen is an excellent substitute for asphalt, and is not liable to crack or squeeze out. Sheet lead is efficient but very costly and also somewhat liable to squeezing. A damp-proof course has been introduced consisting of a thin sheet of lead sandwiched between layers of asphalt. Basement stories to be kept dry require, besides the damp-proof course horizontally in the wall, a horizontal course, usually of asphalt, in the thickness of the floor, and also a vertical damp-proof course from a level below that of the floor to about 6 inches above the level of the ground either built in the thickness of the wall or rendered on the outside between the wall and the surrounding earth figure 10, by means of dry areas or air drains figures 11 and 12, a hollow V.04P.0526 space 9 inches or more in width is formed around those portions of the wall situated below the ground, the object being to prevent them from coming into contact with the brickwork of the main walls and so imparting its moisture to the building. Arrangements should be made for keeping the area clear of vermin and for ventilating and draining it. Dry areas, being far from sanitary, are seldom adopted now, and are being superseded by asphalt or cement applied to the face of the wall. Moisture is prevented from soaking down from the top of the wall by using a covering of some impervious material in the form of a coping. This may consist of ordinary bricks set on edge in cement with a double course of tiles immediately below, called a creasing or of specially made non-poroscoping bricks, or of stone, cast iron, or cement sloped or weathered, in order to throw the rain off. 
the exterior of walls above the ground line may be protected by coating the surface with cement or rough cast, or covering with slates or tiles fixed on battens in a similar manner to those on a roof. Fig.13. The use of hollow walls in exposed positions has already been referred to. The bylaws dated 1891, made by the London County Council under Section 16 of the Metropolis Management and Buildings Acts Amendment Act 1878, require that every wall of a house or building shall have a damp course composed of materials impervious to moisture approved by the district surveyor, extending throughout its whole thickness at the level of not less than 6 inches below the level of the lowest floor. Every external wall or enclosing wall of habitable rooms or their appurtenances or cellars which abuts against the earth shall be protected by materials impervious to moisture to the satisfaction of the district surveyor. The top of every party wall and parapet wall shall be finished with one course of hard, well-burnt bricks set on edge, in cement, or by a coping of any other waterproof and fire-resisting material, properly secured. Arches are constructions built of wedge-shaped blocks which by reason of their shape give support one to another, and to the superimposed weight, the resulting load being transmitted through the blocks to the abutments upon which the ends of the arch rest. An arch should be composed of such materials and designed of such dimensions as to enable it to retain its proper shape and resist the crushing strain imposed upon it. The abutments also must be strong enough to take safely the thrust of the weighted arch, as the slightest movement in these supports will cause deflection and failure. The outward thrust of an arch decreases as it approaches the semicircular form, but the somewhat prevalent idea that in the latter form no thrusting takes place is at variance with fact. Arches in brickwork may be classed under three heads, plain arches, rough cut and gauged. Plain arches are built of uncut bricks, and since the difference between the outer and inner periphery of the arch requires the parts of which an arch is made up to be wedge formed, which an ordinary brick is not, the difference must be made in mortar with the result that the joints become wedge-shaped. This obviously gives an objectionable inconsistency of material in the arch, and for this reason to obtain greatest strength it is advisable to build these arches in independent rings of half-brick thickness. The undermost rings should have thin joints, those of each succeeding ring being slightly thickened. This prevents the lowest ring from settling while those above remain in position, which would cause an ugly fissure. In work of large span bonding blocks or lacing courses should be built into the arch, set in cement and running through its thickness at intervals, care being taken to introduce the lacing course at a place where the joints of the various rings coincide. Stone blocks in the shape of a voussoir figure may 14th be used instead, except for these lacing courses hydraulic lime mortar should be used for large arches, on account of its slightly accommodating nature. Rough cut arches are those in which the bricks are roughly cut with an axe to a wedge form, they are used over openings, such as doors and windows, where a strong arch of neat appearance is desired. The joints are usually made equal in width to those of the ordinary brickwork. Gauged arches are composed of specially made soft bricks, which are cut and rubbed to gauges or templates so as to form perfectly fitting voussoirs. Gauging island of course, equally applicable to arches and walling as it means no more than bringing every brick exactly to a certain form by cutting and rubbing. Gauged brickwork is set in lime putty instead of common mortar, the finished joints should not be more than 132 inches wide. To give stability the sides of the voussoirs are gauged out hollow and grouted in Portland cement, thus connecting each brick with the next by a jottle joint. Gauged arches, being for the most part but a half brick in thickness on the soffit and not being tied by a bond to anything behind them for behind them is the lintel with rough discharging arch over. 
supporting the remaining width of the wall required to be executed with great care and nicety. It is a common fault with workmen to rub the bricks thinner behind than before to lessen the labor required to obtain a very fine face joint. This practice tends to make the work bulge outwards, it should rather be inverted if it be done at all. Though the best work is that in which the bricks are gauged to exactly the same thickness at the back as at the front. The same fault occurs when a gauged arch is inserted in an old wall. On account of the difficulty of filling up with cement the space behind the bricks, the bond of an arch obtains its name from the arrangement of headers and stretchers on its soffit, the underside of an arch built in English bond. Therefore, will show the same arrangement as the face of a wall built in English bond. If the arch is in Flemish the soffit presents the same appearance as the elevation of a wall built in that bond. It is generally held that the building of wood into brickwork should as far as is possible be avoided. Wall plates of wood are, however, necessary where wood joists are used, and where these plates may not be supported on corbels of projecting brickwork or iron they must be let flush into the wall, taking the place of a course of bricks. They form a uniform bed for the joists, to which easy fixing is obtained. The various modes adopted for resting and fixing the ends of joists on walls are treated in the article carpentry, lintels, which may be of iron, steel, plain or reinforced concrete, or stone, are used over square-headed openings instead of or in conjunction with arches. They are full to preserve the square form and receive the joiner's fittings, but except when made of steel or of concrete reinforced with steel bars. They should have relieving arches turned immediately over them. Fig. 15. Fixing bricks were formerly of wood of the same size as the ordinary brick, and built into the wall as required for fixing joinery, owing to their liability to shrinkage and decay. Their use is now practically abandoned, their place being taken by bricks of coke breeze concrete, which do not shrink or rot and hold fast nails or screws driven into them. Another method often adopted for V.04P.0527 providing a fixing for joinery is to build in wood slips the thickness of a joint and 41 to inches wide. When suitable provision for fixing has not been made, wood plugs are driven into the joints of the bricks. Great care must be taken in driving these in the joints of reveals or at the corners of walls, or damage may be done. The name, Brick Ashler, is given to a walls faced with ashlar stonework backed in with brickwork. Such constructions are liable in an aggravated degree to the unequal settling and its attendant evils point doubt as existing in walls built with different qualities of bricks. The outer face is composed of unyielding stone with few and very thin joints, which perhaps do not occupy more than a hundredth part of its height, while the back is built up of bricks with about one-eighth its height composed of mortar joints. That island of a material that by its nature and manner of application must both shrink in drying and yield to pressure. To obviate this tendency to settle and thus cause the bulging of the face or failure of the wall, the mortar used should be composed of Portland cement and sand with a large proportion of the former, and worked as stiff as it conveniently can be. In building such work the stones should be in height equal to an exact number of brick courses. It is a common practice in erecting buildings with a facing of canvas rag rubble to back up the stonework with bricks, owing to the great irregularity of the stones. Great difficulty is experienced in obtaining proper bond between the two materials. Through bonding stones or headers should be frequently built in and the whole of the work executed in cement mortar to ensure stability. Not the least important part of the bricklayer's art is the formation of chimney and other flues. Considerable skill is required in gathering over properly above the fireplace so as to conduct the smoke into the smaller flue, which itself requires to be built with precision, so that its capacity may not vary in different parts. 
bends must be made in gradual curves so as to offer the least possible resistance to the updraft, and at least one bend of not less than 60 degrees should be formed in each flue to intercept downdrafts. Every fireplace must have a separate flue. The collection of a number of flues into a stack is economical, and tends to increase the efficiency of the flues. The heat from one flue assisting the updraft in those adjoining it. It is also desirable from an aesthetic point of view. For a number of single flue chimneys sticking up from various parts of the roof would appear most unsightly. The architects of the Elizabethan and later periods were masters of this difficult art of treating a stack or stacks as an architectural feature. The shaft should be carried well above the roof. Higher, if possible, than adjacent buildings, which are apt to cause downdraft and make the chimney smoke. When this is found impossible, one of the many forms of patent chimney pots or revolving cowls must be adopted. Each flue must be separated by smoke-proof widths or divisions. Usually half a brick in thickness, connection between them causes smoky chimneys. The size of the flue for an ordinary grate is 14x9 in, for a kitchen stove 14x14 in. The outer wall of a chimney stack may with advantage be made 9 inches thick. Fire clay tubes rectangular or circular in transverse section, are largely used in place of the pargeting, although more expensive than the latter they have the advantaging point of cleanliness and durability. Fireplaces generally require more depth than can be provided in the thickness of the wall, and therefore necessitate a projection to contain the fireplace and flues, called the chimney breast. Sometimes, especially when the wall is an external one, the projection may be made on the back thus allowing a flush wall in the room and giving more space and a more conveniently shaped room. The projection on the outside face of the wall may be treated as an ornamental feature. The fireplace opening is covered by a brick-relieving arch, which is fortified by wrought iron bar from 1 to 2 3 4 inches thick and 2 to 3 inches wide. It is usually bent to a camber, and the brick arch built upon it naturally takes the same curve. Each end is cocked, that island split longitudinally and turned up and down. The interior of a chimney breast behind the stove should always be filled in solid with concrete or brickwork. The flooring in the chimney opening is called the hearth. The back hearth covers the space between the jams of the chimney breast, and the front hearth rests upon the brick, trim or arch, designed to support it. The hearth is now often formed in solid concrete, supported on the brick wall and fillets fixed to the floor joists, without any trim or arch and finished in neat cement or glazed tiles instead of stone slabs. Tall furnace chimneys should stand as separate constructions, and connected with other buildings, if it is necessary to bring other work close up. A straight joint should be used, the shaft of the chimney will be built, overhand, the men working from the inside. Lime mortar is used, cement being too rigid to allow the chimney to rock in the wind, not more than three feet in height should be erected in one day. The work of necessity being done in small portions to allow the mortar to set before it is required to sustain much weight. The bond usually adopted is one course of headers to four of stretchers. Scaffolding is sometimes erected outside for a height of 25 or 30 feet to facilitate better pwanning, especially where the chimney is in a prominent position. The brickwork at the top must, according to the London Building Act, be 9 inches thick it is better 14 inches in shafts over 100 feet high, increasing half a brick in thickness for every additional 20 feet measured downwards. The shaft shall taper gradually from the base to the top at the rate of at least 21 to inches in 10 feet of height. The width of the base of the shaft if square shall be at least one-tenth of the proposed height of the shaft, or if round or any other shape, then one-twelfth of the height. 
fire bricks built inside the lower portion of the shaft shall be provided, as additional to and independent of the prescribed thickness of brickwork, and shall not be bonded therewith. The fire brick lining should be carried up from about 25 feet for ordinary temperatures to double that height for very great ones, a space of 11 to 3 inches being kept between the lining and the main wall. The lining itself is usually 41 to inches thick. The cap is usually of cast iron or terracotta strengthened with iron bolts and straps, and sometimes of stone, but the difficulty of properly fixing this latter material causes it to be neglected in favor of one of the former. See a paper by F.J. Bancroft on chimney construction, which contains a tabulated description of nearly 60 shafts. Proc. Sith. And Mac. Eng. Sock. December 1883. The work of laying bricks or tiles as paving falls to the lot of the bricklayer. Paving formed of ordinary bricks laid flat or on their edges was once in general use, but is now almost abandoned in favor of floors of special tiles or cement paving the latter being practically non-porous and therefore more sanitary and cleaner. Special bricks of extremely hard texture are made for stable and similar paving, having grooves worked on the face to assist drainage and afford good foothold. A bed of concrete 6 inches thick is usually provided under paving, or when the bricks are placed on edge the concrete for external paving may be omitted and the bricks bedded in sand, the ground being previously well rammed. The side joints of the bricks are grouted in with lime or cement. Dutch clinkers are small, hard paving bricks burned at a high temperature and of a light yellow color, they are 6 inches long, 3 inches wide, 11 to inches thick. A variety of paving tile called oven tiles is of similar material to the ordinary red brick, and in size is 10 or 12 inches square and 1 to 2 inches thick. An immense variety of ornamental paving and walling tiles is now manufactured of different colors, sizes and shapes, and the use of these for lining sculleries lavatories, bathrooms, provision shops, and c. makes for cleanliness and improved sanitary conditions. Besides, however, being put to these uses, tiles are often used in the ornamentation of buildings, externally as well as internally. Mosaic work is composed of small pieces of marble, stone, glass or pottery, laid as paving or wall lining, usually in some ornamental pattern or design. A firm bed of concrete is required. The pieces of B.04P.0528 material being fixed in a float of cement about half or three quarters of an inch thick. Roman mosaic is formed with cubes of marble of various colors pressed into the float. A less costly paving may be obtained by strewing irregularly shaped marble chips over the floated surface. These are pressed into the cement with a plasterer's hand float, and the whole is then rolled with an iron roller. This is called terrazzo mosaic. In either the Roman or Terrazzo method any patterns or designs that are introduced are first worked in position, the groundwork being filled in afterwards. For the use of cement for paving see plaster. The principal publications on brickwork are as follows, Revington. Notes on Building Construction. Volumes. I.E.I. E.I.A. Dot. Call. H.E. Sedden. Aid Memoir. Volume E.I. Dot. Specification. J.P. Allen. Building Construction. F.E. Kidder. Building Construction and Superintendents, Part I 1903, Longmans and Green, Building Construction, E. Dobson, Bricks and Tiles, Henry Adams, Building Construction, C.F. Mitchell, Building Construction, Volumes, I.E.I. E. Street, Brick and Marble Architecture in Italy, J.B.T., B.R.I.C.O.L.E. A French Word of Unknown Origin, A Military Engine for Casting Heavy Stones, also a term in tennis for a side stroke rebounding off the wall of the court.
corrupted into brick wall from a supposed reference to the wall, and in billiards for a stroke off the cushion to make a cannon or hazard. Bridaini or Bridaini. Shock 1701-1767. French Roman Catholic preacher. Was born at Cheslan in the Department of Guard on the 21st of March 1701. He was educated at Avignon, first in the Jesuit College and afterwards at the Sulpician Seminary of St. Charles. Soon after his ordination to the priesthood in 1725, he joined the Missions Royales, organized to bring back to the Catholic faith the Protestants of France. He gained their goodwill and made many converts, and for over 40 years he visited as a missionary preacher almost every town of central and southern France. In Paris, in 1744, his sermons created a deep impression by their eloquence and sincerity. He died at Roquemore, near Avignon, on the 22nd of December 1767. He was the author of Cantique Spirituals Montpelier, 1748, frequently reprinted, in use in most French churches. His sermons were published in five volumes, at Avignon in 1823 Education Paris, 1861, C. Abbe G. Caron, Omodli des Preters 1803, Bride a Common Teutonic Word, E.G. Goff, Bruce, O.N.Print, O.H.Jer.Prout, Maud, Jer, Brout, Duck, Brood, possibly derived from the root Brew, Cook, Brew, from the Med, Latinized form Brew, in the sense of daughter-in-law is derived the ifar, brew, the term used of a woman on her wedding day, and applicable during the first year of wifehood, it appears in combination with many words, some of them obsolete, thus, bridegroom, is the newly married man, and, bride bell, bride banquet, are old equivalents of wedding bells, wedding breakfast, bridal, from bride ale, originally the wedding feast itself, has grown into a general descriptive adjective, e.g. the bridal party, the bridal ceremony, the bride cake had its origin in the Roman Confaritio, a form of marriage, the essential features of which were the eating by the couple of a cake made of salt, water and flour, and the holding by the bride of three weak ears, symbolical of plenty. Under Tiberius the cake eating fell into disuse, but the weak ears survived. In the Middle Ages they were either worn or carried by the bride. Eventually it became the custom for the young girls to assemble outside the church porch and throw grains of wheat over the bride and afterwards a scramble for the grains took place. In time the wheat grains came to be cooked into thin dry biscuits, which were broken over the bride's head, as is the custom in Scotland today. An oatmeal cake being used, in Elizabeth's reign these biscuits began to take the form of small rectangular cakes made of eggs, milk, sugar, currants and spices. Every wedding guest had one at least, and the whole collection were thrown at the bride the instant she crossed the threshold. Those which lighted on her head or shoulders were most prized by the scramblers. At last these cakes became amalgamated into a large one which took on its full glories of almond paste and ornaments during Charles I.S. time. But even today in rural parishes, e.g. North Knots, wheat is thrown over the bridal couple with the cry, bread for life and pudding forever, expressive of a wish that the newly wed may be always affluent. The throwing of rice, a very ancient custom but one later than the wheat is symbolical of the wish that the bridal may be fruitful. The bride cup was the bowl or loving cup in which the bridegroom pledged the bride, and she him. The custom of breaking this wine cup, after the bridal couple had drained its contents, is common to both the Jews and the members of the Greek church. The former dash it against the wall or on the ground, the latter tread it underfoot. 
The phrase, bride cup, was also sometimes used of the bowl of spiced wine prepared at night for the bridal couple. Bride favors, anciently called bride lace, were at first pieces of gold, silk or other lace, used to bind up the sprigs of rosemary formerly worn at weddings. These took later the form of bunches of ribbons, which were at last metamorphosed into rosettes. Bridegroom men and bridesmaids had formerly important duties. The men were called bride knights and represented a survival of the primitive days of marriage by capture. When a man called his friends in to assist to lift the bride, bridesmaids were usual in Saxon England. The senior of them had personally to attend the bride for some days before the wedding, the making of the bridal wreath, the decoration of the tables for the wedding feast, the dressing of the bride, were among her special tasks. In the same way the senior groomsman the best man was the personal attendant of the husband, the bride wane. The wagon in which the bride was driven to her new home, gave its name to the weddings of any poor deserving couple, who drove a wain round the village, collecting small sums of money or articles of furniture towards their housekeeping. These were called bidding weddings, or bid ales, which were in the nature of benefit feasts. So general is still the custom of bidding weddings in Wales, that printers usually keep the form of invitation in type. Sometimes as many as 600 couples will walk in the bridal procession. The bride's wreath is a Christian substitute for the gilt coronet all Jewish brides wore. The crowning of the bride is still observed by the Russians, and the Calvinists of Holland and Switzerland. The wearing of orange blossoms is said to have started with the Saracens, who regarded them as emblems of fecundity. It was introduced into Europe by the Crusaders. The bride's veil is the modern form of the flamum or large yellow veil which completely enveloped the Greek and Roman brides during the ceremony. Such a covering is still in use among the Jews and the Persians. See Brand, Antiquities of Great Britain Hazlitt's Education 1905, Rev. J. Edward Vox, Church Folklore 1894, B-R-I-D-E-W-E-L-L, a district of London between Fleet Street and the Thames, so called from the well of St. Bride or St. Bridget close by, from William the Conqueror's time, a castle or Norman tower, long the occasional residence of the kings of England, stood there by the Fleet Ditch. Henry VII, Stowe says, built there, a stately and beautiful house, specially for the housing of the Emperor Charles V and his suite in 1525, during the hearing of the divorce suit by the Cardinals at Blackfriars, Henry and Catherine of Aragon lived there, in 1553 Edward VI, made it over to the city as a penitentiary, a house of correction for vagabonds and loose women, and it was formally taken possession of by the Lord Mayor and Corporation in 1555. The greater part of the building was destroyed in the Great Fire of 1666. New Bridewell, built in 1829, was pulled down in 1864. The term has become a synonym for any reformatory. Bridge, a game of cards, developed out of the game of whist. The country of its origin is unknown. A similar game is said to have been played in Denmark in the middle of the 19th century. A game in all respects the same as bridge except that in, no trumps, each trick counted ten instead of twelve, was played in England about 1884 under the name of Dutch West, some connected with Turkey and Egypt under the name of, Khadiv, or with a Russian game called, Yeralish. It was in Turkey that it first won a share of popular favor, under the synonyms of, Birich, Bridge, or, Russian West, it found its way to the London clubs about 1894, from which date its popularity rapidly increased, Ordinary Bridge, Bridge, in its ordinary form, differs from V.04P.0529 West in the following respects, although there are four players, 
yet in each hand the partner of the dealer takes no part in the play of that particular hand. After the first league his cards are placed on the table exposed, and are played by the dealer as at dummy whist, nevertheless the dealer's partner is interested in the result of the hand equally with the dealer. The trump suit is not determined by the last card dealt, but is selected by the dealer or his partner without consultation, the former having the first option. It is further open to them to play without a trump suit. The value of tricks and honors varies with the suit declared as trumps. Honors are reckoned differently from whist, and on a scale which is somewhat involved. The score for honors does not count towards winning or losing the rubber, but is added afterwards to the trick score in order to determine the value of the rubber. There are also scores for holding no trumps, chicane, and for winning all the tricks or all but one, slam. The score has to be kept on paper. It is usual for the scoring block to have two vertical columns divided halfway by a horizontal line. The left column is for the scorer's side, and the right for the opponent's. Honors are scored above the horizontal line, and tricks below. The drawback to this arrangement is that, since the scores for each hand are not kept separately, it is generally impossible to trace an error in the score without going through the whole series of hands. A better plan, it seems, is to have four columns ruled the inner two being assigned to tricks, the outer ones to honors. By this method a line can be reserved for each hand, and any discrepancy in the score is at once rectified. The Portland Club, London, drew up a code of laws in 1895, and this code, with a few amendments, was in July 1895 adopted by a joint committee of the Turf and Portland Clubs. A revised code came into force in January 1905, the provisions of which are here summarized. Each trick above six counts two points in a spade declaration. Four in a club, six in a diamond, eight in a heart, twelve in a no trump declaration. The game consists of thirty points made by tricks alone. When one side has won two games the rubber is ended. The winners are entitled to add one hundred points to their score. Honors consist of ace, king, queen, knave, ten, in a suit declaration. If a player and his partner can jointly hold three or, simple, honors they score twice the value of a trick, if four honors, four times, if five honors, five times. If a player in his own hand hold four honors he is entitled to score four honors in addition to the score four conjoined honors, thus, if one player hold four honors and his partner the other their total score is nine by honors. Similarly if a player hold five honors in his own hand he is entitled to score ten by honors. If in a no-trump hand the partners can jointly hold three aces, they score 34 honors, if four aces, 44 honors, four aces in one hand count 100. On the same footing as the score four honors are the following, chicane, if a player hold no trump, in amount equal to simple honors, grand slam, if one side win all the tricks, 40 points, little slam, if they win 12 tricks, 20 points, at the end,